Hi, I'm Brandon. And I'm Megan. For years, we were stuck in a rut, always complaining that nothing ever changed for us. And then we realized, if we wanted to improve our lives, we had to put in the work. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into an aspect of personal growth, relationships, or just life. Through our own experiences and guest interviews, we hope to inspire you to make your own positive changes. Welcome Welcome to to the the Fools in Love Podcast. Podcast. Today, we're so excited to have Jeff Goins on the Fools in Love podcast. Jeff is a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. He is the best-selling author of five books, including The Art of Work and Real Artists Don't Starve. His award-winning blog, GoinsWriter.com, is visited by millions of people every year. Through his online courses, events, and coaching programs, he helps thousands of writers succeed every year. Jeff lives with his family just outside of Nashville, and I'm told he makes the world's best guacamole. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Brandon. Good to be here. I'm glad to be a fool with you today. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, before we get started, I have to know uh, first about this, this world-famous guacamole. <laughs> Do you like guacamole? We love guacamole. Oh, yeah. Well, years ago, my wife and I were going to a Mexican restaurant, and I, I was watching them make tableside guacamole and charging me $15 for it or something, and I thought, I know how to do that. I can buy an avocado and mash it up. And so it's, uh, you know, before the days of of the avocado toast, I was smashing avocados and having a good old time. Hey, that's amazing. So for those, (laughs) for those of you who may not be super familiar with your work, can you just talk a little bit more about what you do and how you even got to where you are today? Well, I'll try, but so far the words are not coming out too well. I said good to have you because I'm used to interviewing people on my podcast. I don't know if you guys ever experienced that where you're like, wait, I'm, I'm the one being, <laughs> being interviewed now. This is different. So I'm a writer who writes books about career and personal development kind of stuff, uh, inspirational books. And then I also run an online business teaching writers and creative people how to succeed with their craft. And I've done that through online courses and all those things. Uh, events. We host a, an annual event called Tribe Conference. Just lots of fun things. I learned some things while I was becoming a writer and I have been able to share what I've learned with other people. And I also run a blog and a podcast, which is why I said what I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, I read your book, The Art of Work, earlier this year and immediately. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. And, and immediately I, I recommended it to Megan to read as well because it just really struck a chord with me. Because for a long time, I felt like my calling should just be one day revealed to me in some dramatic fashion by the way of like God speaking to me through a burning bush or <laughs> some other crazy thing. But totally, yeah. as I started to realize, and your book kind of confirms is that it's not really the way your calling works. So in your experience, how does the process of finding your life's work actually start? I think um, I think it can work that way. So I would never tell somebody. I would never tell somebody about their own experience, right? Like if you said, "I did, you know, in a dream, you know, see this thing or have an epiphany, and my life changed after that." Uh, there are some people I grant that that sort of thing happens, but I wrote that book for everyone to whom that has not happened, right? That your life just feels a little bit chaotic, a little bit messy, and you trying to figure out what the next step is you should I get married should I have kids should I take this job should I quit that job like how what should I do I wanted to 
you know, write a more honest approach to the messiness of that pro- process of figuring out who am I and what am I supposed to do in this world? And so uh, in the book, I talk about how the process really begins with awareness. It begins with what Parker Palmer calls listening to your life. And Parker Palmer is an author and an activist and a Quaker. And he uh, wrote this wonderful book called Let Your Life Speak. And in that book, he said, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. And so really the whole process of finding your calling, discovering, discovering your life's work, purpose, mission, whatever you want to call it, the process of going, I don't know what I'm doing with my life to, I kind of do know what I'm doing with my life, is messy and requires you to just become more aware of you. Who am I? What do I like? What am I good at? What am I not good at? What should I do more of? What should I do less of? And I find that that requires, one, some personal introspection, right? Just paying attention. We all kind of hit these critical, almost crisis moments in our lives where the way we've been doing things is no longer working. And and so that requires a little bit of insight, whether you go to a therapist or just, you know, meditate, pray, think through what what's missing right now for me to feel this angst, you know? So those moments are always gifts. And then the other thing that I think is really important and maybe relevant to our discussion here is uh, the importance of community, right? So you discovering your calling is likely a process of you listening to yourself, you know, listening to what Parker Palmer calls the inner teacher. Some might think of it as God or intuition, but it's listening to that. Uh, and But and then it's also seeing how it resonates in community. What are other people saying about you? What are they observing? And it doesn't mean that their opinion of what you should do with your life is what you should follow. But as you should know, Brandon, you know, uh, our spouses can see things in us that um, we don't often see in ourselves. And so I, I really think of it as a process of listening, listening to yourself, and then listening to others and starting to take steps forward. Mm, So good. So how does taking risks and experiencing failure fit into this whole process of starting to find your calling, starting to find your life's work? Well, I think that um, when you are starting any journey, right, you, you don't have the whole thing. You can't see the whole thing. Even if you have the whole thing mapped out, all you could ever see is uh, a few feet in front of you, right? You can see the next few steps if you're lucky. I think of it as you know the, the idea of discovering your life's work, whether that's oh, I'm supposed to be a full-time mom or I'm supposed to be a plumber or a magician, you know, like that process requires you to take little steps before you can see the whole path. And I think of it like you're sort of navigating an actual path, a trail, you know, on, on a mountainside or something. And you can typically only see down to the next bend, right? The next curve in the trail. And so if you get caught up going, well, what's what's down there? What's around the bend? Like that's not your job right now. Your job is to take the next step. And so when we think about failure, right? You, I, I think the first sort of myth that I wanted to debunk about calling and purpose is that you just know, right? I call it the just the you just know myth. Like the idea that one day you just know what you're supposed to do and then you do it. That is the way that lots of people tend to talk about it. But those people have made a lot of action and progress. And looking back, they're like, oh, of course, there's something inside of me that knew, which I. I agree with, but I think often while we're taking the steps, there's lots of insecurity, 
Like, is this the right way? There's lots of fear. Am I going to make a mistake? And so, you know, reconciling that also with the reality that you will take some quote unquote wrong steps. You'll move into some uh, directions that feel like failure that, that are just kind of feedback. They're just opportunities to learn what resonates and what doesn't resonate. And so if you think I'm, I'm going to get an epiphany and then I'm going to know what to do with my life, that's, that's the wrong way to go about it because clarity comes with action. So on one hand, I think it's good to listen and be sort of vigilant of your own life, you know, a watcher and listener of your own life. I also think action is really important. So like if you get an insight, oh, I think I'd like to do more of this. Well, that's great. But doing it and like talking about it are very different. And so I think the best thing that you can do when you're trying to find what you're supposed to do with your life is try a bunch of different things, whether those are jobs or hobbies or uh, internships throughout college, you know, beginning to sort of experiment with the kinds of things that you want to do. And then understanding that that will lead to quote unquote failure, you doing something and it not working or you not liking it. And I think that we often, one, avoid failure, go, oh, that's not what I'm supposed to do, uh, or two, try to push through it. And I think neither of those approaches uh, are the best approach. Um, I think the best approach is to learn from the feed, uh, the failure, use it as feedback. And then if you can't go over it, right, you can't go through it, but maybe you can go around it. And so often uh, in the stories that I told in that book of individuals who discovered their life's work, the failure was something that they used. It kind of became leverage. And, and this is a concept of pivot points. So failure is a pivot point, meaning if you run into an obstacle, you can't always overcome it, nor do you need to run away from it, but you might have to sort of pivot around it. And so the moments that we fail in life, even if we look back, you know, past five, 10 years, think about what you would have considered a failure. Those are often critical decision points that if you learn from them, they allowed you to not repeat the failure or you know, whatever, but, 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 you know, use the failure, understand it, and then turn it into something else. And so this is the, this is the concept of pivoting. Don't avoid your failure. Don't always try to overcome it. Also, don't be afraid of it, but learn to, to pivot around failures. Yeah, I love that because that's one of the biggest takeaways. Honestly, your book, uh, The Art of Work, I mean, it was, it was eye-opening for me because I was always looking for like that aha moment, like that opening in the cloud, like this is what I'm supposed to do. And you just know, like you get to the point and you just know. And I spent a lot of time watching and waiting, but not so much time taking that action. And since I've kind of pivoted, like you said, turned my life into action and just experiencing new things, experiencing new people, it just opens your eyes to so many new opportunities, but you really got to be open to that and understand that for that to happen. Right. Well, let me ask you, you guys this. I would love to hear your, your thoughts on this if, if I can interview you for a minute. Um, of course. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, like the you just know thing. Uh, I know some people talk about this, you know, with love. Do you think like with, like when you love somebody, when you're in love with somebody, do you just know? Like what is, what is your process for that? You know, it's a tough question because I like to think that when I first met Megan, I knew there was something different about her. I knew there was something that intrigued me about her that was different from other women that I had encountered in my life. But did I just know? I don't think so. I think it took a matter of different experiences, a matter of time before I really knew 
because I think the idea that is portrayed in the movies and in books and in romance is that you just kind of fall in love with someone. But the idea that you can just fall in love with someone to me means you can just as easily fall out of love with them. And I feel like love is something that you have to build and grow and it comes through experience and time. Yeah. What do you think, Megan? I don't know if I could say it really any better than Brandon just did. I mean, I feel like, you know, definitely like Brandon was saying, I I felt something for sure. But then as we spent time together and as we learned more about each other, that was when I thought, man, this could be the guy that I eventually marry. And then that kind of leads me to like, do I think he's the only person in my life that I could have married? No, but I think that he was the one that was made for me for that time and that became forever. If I hadn't met him, it's not like I wouldn't have ever met my soulmate. He just wouldn't have been that soulmate. So it's kind of just like a funny thing. I mean, yes, absolutely. I do. But I don't think like, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the, um, I think it's a story of like George W. Bush talking to his wife uh, uh, and saying, oh yeah, it was Trisha Bush got done with the presidency. He was talking to his wife, Laura. They had stopped at a gas station and they're like, you know, filling up for gas, secret service, whole deal. And the and Laura went into the um, gas station and she starts talking to the, the, the gas station clerk and, you know, gives him a hug and, you know, comes back out and George W. Bush goes, you know, what was that? She goes, oh, that was, that was an old boyfriend of mine. You know, he was like, wow, can you believe it? You married him. If you married him instead of me, you wouldn't have been the first lady. You would have been the wife of the gas station clerk. She said, no, if I married him, he would have become president. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I think, it, I mean, I, I agree with you, right? Like those are both, I, I feel like those are pretty honest, um, assessments and correct in terms of how like I've also experienced love uh it's something different you know it feels powerful it's an energy and yeah there's there's choice involved in it too right like I can feel something and not act on that or I can feel something and act on it as I continue to build a relationship with someone the love continues to grow and it turns into other things right it turns into a commitment and you know just these other expressions of love beyond emotion and I think the same thing is true with work. Whatever you want to think of as your life's work, again, this can be a job, uh, it can be a role. And in fact, it's all of those things. It's who you are and what you were born to do. But it's like one part mystery. You know, there is this kind of mysterious part of the process. And at the same time, it's very, very practical. And, and I think trying to, to marry that mystery with the practicality is how you grow, how you become the person that you're supposed to be is through insight, listening to your life, and then action, right? Taking a step, seeing what happens, learning from the failure, using it, uh, continuing to listen, continuing to grow, but also continuing to choose to take steps, even if it means th the wrong step, which I would submit often is not necessarily wrong. It's just, you know, it's, it's information. You learn from it. And I often find the most frustrating times in my life are not times when I'm failing, the times when I'm not acting, when I'm refusing to take the next step, when I'm scared, when I'm indecisive, I'm ambivalent, I'm just trying to figure it out. And when I get sort of spun up in that, I can't get any more new information. I realize, oh, that's because clarity comes with action. Information comes as feedback in the form of me doing something. And so I'd rather do the wrong thing, you know, take the wrong step, move in the wrong direction and learn from it than to just stay stuck in the same place. 
Yeah, that is, that's definitely powerful stuff because like you said, you, you find yourself sitting there, you know, watching your life happen rather than actually going out and making something happen. And I, and I love your analogy, by the way, of the bringing in the love and the relationships into that. And that would actually was one of our questions for you is like, how much does the people you surround yourself with help you in like finding your calling, like your spouse, like your partner, like just people you surround yourself with in your life? How important is that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important. But I have sort of um, two perspectives on it. Because on one hand, this was not a solo journey for me, me becoming a writer going from working for a nonprofit to becoming a full time author, which is something I didn't think I could do. I didn't think that was possible. I don't think people made money doing this unless you're like Stephen King or something. So on one hand, I believe that every story of success is really a story of community. That when you look at any successful person, anybody who has discovered their life's purpose and lives a, a, a life of great meaning, it's not just a solo act. It's a journey with other people. Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, says there's basically three things that you need to have a meaningful life. And one is you need to have a redemptive view of, su- of suffering, meaning you can look at the pain in your life and go, I forgive my enemies. I, I let go of past hurts. And this, this has all made me the person that I am today. If you're resentful, if you're bitter about it, your life is not going to be meaningful because you're stuck in the past. You're not living in the present. The second thing is um, you've got to have work to do. So, I mean, Viktor Frankl, you know, survived uh, concentration camps, you know, in, in World War II. And one of the things that kept him alive is he had something to do every day. And that's something he had to do was he was secretly writing a book that he was hiding so that they, the Nazis couldn't find it about his experiences, which became this book, one of the best-selling books of all time. But it was like having to get up in the morning and do something, right? And then the third thing he says it takes to have a meaningful life is uh, someone to love. And the third thing that kept him alive in a concentration camp for years was the idea that one day he'd see his wife again. And the, the sad truth is she was dead. He didn't know that because she was in another camp, but she had died. But, but the, the picture, the idea of her kept him uh, lit, you know, just getting by one more day. And so from a, from a surviving and even thriving standpoint, we need other people, not just people in our lives, but the supports, the memories, the love uh, for someone else is actually what keeps us alive. And so I think it's not just, it's like, Brandon, it's not just that you need your wife's help or encouragement for you to become who you need to become, but it's, it's the fact that you need someone to love, like, because love is a gift, it, it can be a sacrifice. Like, there's something about that, about learning to love someone that helps us become who we are. And so on one hand, super important. On the other hand, just because like your mom or your spouse or your neighbor doesn't understand what you're trying to do, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And so I often, you know, hear people that go, I, I, I can't pursue my dream because my, you know, husband or wife isn't uh, in support of that. And, and I, I've found that often the, the case is they just don't understand it. Right. Mm. And so I think you have to be careful with that. We could talk more about that because I'm sure you guys run into that as well. Where people go, my wife isn't supporting me. Why won't they support me? So that's why I say one, it's not so much about somebody loving you, although that's incredible, of course. It's really about having someone to love, right? That drives us 
and allows us to share a gift with the world. And so th that could be a companion, a partner. It often is for people. Honestly, it could be a dog. It could be a pet. I mean, like the, the studies of people that are happier just because they have uh, an animal to take care of or, or through the roof could be a child. Uh, it could also be the people that experience this work that you're doing, right? The, the community that comes around you when, you know, you're feeling lost. And I don't know what your experience is like with life, but mine is that whenever I'm going through a real hard time, what looks like failure or struggle is, um, first of all, just a, a big lesson that I'm about to learn. And these people just kind of come out of the woodwork. And it's not always the same people, but friends, family, someone comes alongside me to help me figure this out and learn the lesson. And when that happens, uh, first of all, I kind of have to get out of my trap of self-pity. Um, but whenever that happens, I try to pay attention and go, oh, this person's here to help me. So community is essential, especially having spouses and partners and friends who love you to tell you what's resonating with them. Because I think a calling is is understanding what resonates with you and also resonates with other people, with the world around you. And it was, I think, Frederick Beekner who said, your calling is the place where your, your deepest joy meets the world's deepest need. And so you need other people to say, oh, yeah, like somebody needs that, right? And it's not just a passion, right? Uh, a calling is greater than a passion because it's, there's resonance. It's, you are doing something that resonates with you internally, and it also resonates with other people. And so you can't figure that out without having people along the way go, keep going. This is good. You're on to something. I mean, there's like a thousand things I could say to that right now. That was like every question I had in one, in one <laughs> succinct place. <laughs> no, that was great. So I guess I want to go back to where we're talking about the understanding what you're doing thing, because yes, like you said, we have definitely run into that uh, where people are like, I don't get it. And that's like one of the hardest places to push through is when somebody that you're close to, especially is thinking like, I don't. I don't understand what you're doing and why would you do that? And what is a, you know, what is a blog? What is a podcast? What is whatever the right. thing? Like, why, yeah. why would you do something like that? And just having to work through that. So if somebody's in that, in that area where they just don't have that support, any advice or words of wisdom, just to push them through that little final hump so they can do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of layers to this, but I think the, the hardest and, and most common I hear, and you may, maybe you guys experience something different, but I think it's often the case that somebody has a partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, or a parent who doesn't get it and it's devastating. And, I, and the first thing that you have to understand is if you are trying to change, you are trying to do some new thing in your life, even if it's always been there and you've been scared to do it, which is often the case, right? Uh, but chase a dream, start a side hustle, uh, do something that you've never done before understand that the people who are closest to you will not immediately get it because that's not who you've been. And they, they don't really know you. They know who you've been to them, right? What is it? Anais Nin says, uh, we don't see people as they are. We see them as we are, right? And so we have to be very careful of what uh, psychologists call projection, where I take all of my fears, all of my insecurities. And then when you say some, something, right? when Brandon says, you know, something to you and uh, you immediately get defensive and go, ah, why can't you support me? You know, like understand that most of that's probably not him. It's you, right? Like he's not being judgmental or critical or whatever you are, right. but it's a, it's a projection. 
And I think the same thing happens with, you know, other people about us. Like they see us as they are. And so I think it's, it's good to be a little bit compassionate and go, I understand that this might be freaking them out right now, right? Like I understand that this sounds crazy. And what I had done, what I'd experienced in my mid twenties was what a lot of people do. I think we're, you're in a job that is okay, but it's not like you're, it's not like you're forever thing. You don't think, but life is kind of starting to stabilize. We had just gotten married. I got a real full-time job with a salary. <clears throat> we had health insurance, you know, like um, <laughs> things were, things were slowing down in the sense of the pace of life, you know, which ha necessarily happens and everybody's slowing down looks a little bit different, but you know, lots of things slow you down, but usually life just kind of tends towards uh, consistency, but we continued to grow and change. And in my twenties, I, I had a dozen different big ideas for a blog or a business or an organization that I wanted to start. And I would, I would go all in on it and then it would fizzle out. You know, and so my wife was understandably at times skeptical. And looking back, I don't think she was being critical. I think she's just like asking good questions, but I didn't have good answers. And so I was always insecure and defensive about it. And what happened after that was I, I, I finally got tired of trying and failing because I would like start a blog. I wanted to be a writer. So I'd start a blog. I get a new idea you know, and then I would do it for like six weeks and then I would get bored or it wouldn't take off and I'd just quit it. So these nine different blogs that had all failed and I realized the thing that they all had in common was I had quit them all and I quit them all within less than six months of starting them. And so I thought, well, what if I started one and I didn't quit it? And, and I had started to realize through community, through other people speaking into my life, Sometimes when I asked them, sometimes when I didn't ask them, uh, the idea of being a writer kept popping up. I was a marketing director at a nonprofit, and I I just met this person uh, who became a friend of mine. He asked me what my dream was, and I said I don't, I don't really know. We just met, right? He says, "Well, I would have thought that you know your dream was to be a writer," and I said, "Really? Why?" And he said, "Well, because you talk about writing all the time. You're obviously <laughs> like writing. Like it's pretty obvious, you know." And I said, "Yeah, you know, I guess I'd like to be a writer someday." And he said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. I was like, oh, okay. So I, I started believing that I was this thing that I wanted to be. And I don't think of that as like faking it till you make it, but more like believing it till you become it. And so all, these, these sorts of conversations kept popping up. And, and so I decided I was going to start a new blog, but this time I wasn't going to quit it in six months. I was going to do it for two years without quitting before I would give up on it. And so I was going to work on a little bit every day for two years. And so that's what I did. And I didn't immediately tell my wife because honestly, I was trying to see if I was serious enough before I was going to ask her to come along with me on another journey, right? On another uh, dream. <clears throat> and what really kind of pushed me forward in taking this uh, project more seriously, which eventually became my job, you know, my, my life's work is, well, we got pregnant and we were planning on starting a family, but I mean, you know, sometimes these things happen sooner than you were thinking they would. And that's what happened <laughs> with, that's what happened with us about six months before we thought we'd get pregnant. We got pregnant. And, um, all of a sudden this wasn't just about me anymore. This is going back to the community thing, having someone to love. And it wasn't just about me and her anymore. It was about, we both had decent jobs. Uh, 
she wanted to stay home and, and do the full-time mom thing for at least the first few years, but we could not afford for her to do that. So she was planning on taking her maternal leave and then going back to work. And so now I had this dream that I was pursuing, which I'd already started for me because it was something I needed to do. But now I had a reason to like turn it into a business and make enough money. And it, it I got a little bit hungry, right? Like it, there was a drive in me that wasn't there before because if I could do this and I could make this much money uh, doing it in the next year, then I could replace her income. She could stay home and I could just have two jobs. And um, that's, that's really what, you know, drove me early on is first of all, when you're pursuing a dream, you have to believe it before anybody else will. So if you don't really believe in it and then you're asking your spouse or partner or parent to support you, well, understand that they probably don't get it at first. And so your number one job is to be all in on this. And it's okay to, to I think it's okay to sort of do it on the side without a lot of fanfare or announcements. I mean, like, if you want to become a professional bowler, don't like disappear every night and go bowling and not tell your spouse. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I didn't make a big deal about this for the first few months. I was like, I just want to see if I'm actually serious. And then, you know, I, I do think there's a time where you can sort of bring people along on the journey because in some ways they're going to see things, blind spots that you might otherwise miss. And so what, the day that I got super serious about this was like into this process of kind of deciding to, you know, okay, I'm really going to pursue writing. I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm going to pursue writing. I had gone to a conference, paid a couple hundred bucks to have this guy tell me how to sort of pursue a dream and turn it into a business. And there was a point in the conference where he said, hey, who here doesn't know what their dream is? And like half the room's hands went up. Which I thought was interesting because there's a conference about people that are turning their dream into a business. And he said, I don't, I, I think you're, you're lying. He says, I think you do know what your dream is. You're just afraid to admit it. And I want you to write down on this piece of paper, the first thing that comes to your mind. And I immediately wrote down writer. That was a big epiphany for me. And so then I go home and my wife is in bed at this point. It's like 11 o'clock at night. I burst into her bedroom door and I go, Hey, Hey, look at this. I figured out what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I'm like shaking this, you know, pad of paper. And it says, it says writer. I'm supposed to be a writer. Can you believe it? <laughs> she, she, she said, are you kidding me? I've been telling you that for five years and you had to go to some stupid conference to pay $200 for somebody to tell you. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's like that, right? Like don't make them the enemy of your dream, right? But don't require them to be the sole supporter of your dream either. You've got to believe it before anyone else can. And then it's your job to not bring everybody on board, but to just be clear uh, on what it is. But uh, eventually you should start to see some people who love you and care about you, who want you to succeed as not just helpers, not just supporters, but people who can help you recognize blind spots. And that's what um, uh, my wife has been for many years. Oh, wow. Mind blown. That's all I can say. I mean, uh, just, man, Jeff, I got to say thank you so much for, for joining us today. I mean, we knew that this would be, be a powerful interview and you'd be a powerful guest, but you've honestly brought more to it than, than we could have imagined. So we really appreciate that. We know so many people struggle with, with these things, with this topic, with all these ideas we're talking about. And we just really appreciate your perspective today. Oh, you're welcome, Brandon. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Megan. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah. And for all of you out there, all you listeners, go, go over to goinswriter.com. You can check Jeff out. You can also follow his quite comical Instagram at Jeff Goins. And if you haven't yet, you need to go out and buy The Art of Work. It will change your life.
Hey, B, what did you think of that episode? I think it was pretty dang good. Well, what should someone do if they enjoyed these last 30 minutes? They should probably head over and leave us a review so we can reach more people. They definitely should. Guys, if you like the Fools in Love podcast, please go follow us over on Instagram at Fools in Love Podcast. We'd love to connect with you and learn more about what you'd like to hear. 